Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Galatians, which I am thoroughly enjoying. And this morning's message is entitled, How to be Righteous leaving law and living by grace. But you know what? As I was listening to our, our music this morning, I was thinking, I'm going to change the title of that, that first part, to Saving Grace, Leaving Law and Living by Grace, because that's the name of our church. And the reason that's the name of our church is because this whole salvation that we have is by grace. We're not just saved by grace and then left to do it all on our own. We're saved by grace and we continue to live this Christian life by grace and that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what this passage is about. So let's read it. Let's pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 2 just to get the context of where we're going in 17 through 21 today. And before we do that, let's just ask God for His, His power, His grace to help us. Father, we... Thank you that we can be here and that we can submit ourselves to the truth of Jesus Christ through the Word of God. And I pray, Father, that as a result of this message this morning, that you would help us all to to experience your grace, your power, your strength, your ability to do what we can't do on a daily basis, that it would really change our Christian lives, that you would help us to, as we're going to see with Paul's testimony, that you would help us to be able to say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I pray that that would be our experience as a result of hearing the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth, Paul says. And he, if you'll remember the context from last week, Paul had rebuked Peter, two, two Jewish men, men born Jewish, for he had rebuked Peter for eating with the Gentiles, those who were non-Jews. So Paul is continuing that thought, and he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now I want you to notice before we go on, He doesn't say not Gentiles. He says not Gentile sinners. Well, that's kind of offensive to non-Jews, isn't it? But he does that for a reason, and we'll see that as we go on. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, Because by works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too, Paul's saying we too, us who were born Jewish, were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Again, you'll remember last week, Peter was eating with the, the Gentile people. And, and he, he was in the right to do so. Because in Christ, we, we Christians are now all one. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We're all one. And so, Peter was applying that gospel of grace truth, eating with the Gentiles. And Paul came over, I'm sorry, before Paul came over, he saw these Jewish legalists coming down to the picnic. And when he saw them coming from the distance, Peter and Barnabas, these guys scattered. They scattered because they didn't want to be seen eating with the the sinners, the Gentile sinners. And that was because it was a Jewish law that they weren't allowed to do such. And these people who were coming and who would see them eating with the Gentile sinners would judge them legalistically because that's, that's not right. You shouldn't be doing that. So these were the people that were coming who were the legalists of the Galatian church. These are the very people who Paul is pointing out the error of being legalistic toward in this letter. And so we saw how Paul rebuked Peter because Peter was actually endorsing legalistic behavior. And this is what Joe preached on last week. We're just basically reviewing it a little bit. Peter was endorsing legalistic behavior by, by leaving the Gentiles. And, and what he was doing was implying basically to these new Gentile Christians that the law is still in effect, or at least we're still going to practice it. And Paul rebuked him for that because that was not behavior worthy of the gospel. So that was the dilemma in Galatia. There was an idea that you had to keep some laws to be righteous before God. And that's really the dilemma in, a, in our lives a lot of times. We think, how can we be righteous? We want to be righteous as Christians. We want to please God. We want to walk in His ways. But how do we do that? How can I live this Christian life? How can I do it in a a way that's pleasing to God? And I believe our passage today really, maybe more than any single passage in the New Testament, shows us how God intends for that to be done. Paul said at the pinnacle of his argument in the passage that we read this morning in verse 21, I do not nullify or, or cancel out the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And we're going to see that Paul's not only talking about this this positional righteousness that we have in Christ. He's talking about all righteousness. He's talking about living out the Christian life. Becoming who we really are positionally, experientially. That all comes by the grace of God. And none of it comes by law-keeping. Amen. So grace. What, what is this 
grace that Paul is so concerned with the legalists nullifying or canceling out. What is it? Let's seek to avoid any, any misunderstanding or confusion. And let's just take a few minutes and look at grace. What is it? Well, for one thing, grace is not mercy. Grace is not mercy. This is so important to understand because when, pe- when people conflate grace and mercy, when they, when they make them mean the same thing, it really devalues the idea of holiness in our lives, practical holiness. Mercy is the thing that allows us to be forgiven of our sins. When we say that we deserve hell because we've sinned, and God says, you're not going to go to hell because of Jesus Christ and His blood, we have received mercy. Mercy is not receiving what we're due because of our behavior. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. That's mercy. Mercy, you could say it this way, mercy cancels out the negative, but grace, on the other hand, imparts the positive. Mercy cancels out the negative, but grace imparts the positive. If mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is what saves us. We're saved. The free gift of salvation is God's grace. We're getting, we're getting eternal life. We're getting the Spirit indwelling us. We're getting this resurrection from our transgressions and the deadness of our spiritual life and made alive. We're getting God's grace. When we get God's power, God's ability to do what we can't do every day, and I want to make this explicitly clear, we can't live this Christian life. Nobody in here and nobody in the rest of the world has the power, the ability to live this Christian life in and of themselves. But God has given us His grace to do so. And so, While mercy cancels the negative, grace imparts unto us the positive, and both are unearned. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor toward us. We don't deserve it. As a matter of fact, the only way to qualify for either mercy or grace is to not deserve them. That's the only way that one can qualify, because they're both given to us unmerited. We cannot earn them. So, Here's what happens. The reason this is so important, if we move grace over into the mercy side and we don't really understand what grace does in our lives and we just conflate the two, then basically we just can get away with sin. That's, that's really all there is. If there is just mercy, and mercy is great. I don't want to devalue mercy. Because of mercy, God doesn't see our sins, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins for those of us in Christ. And I don't want to devalue that. But if that's all there is, well then why not just sin? 
Paul makes the argument in our, our passage today and in other places, Romans chapter 5, for example, where he says at the end of that passage, where grace abounds, where sin abounds, sorry, grace abounds much more. It hyperabounds. He actually says grace is hyper-grace where sin abounds. It goes above and beyond our sin. In other words, you can't sin yourself out of being qualified for grace because then it wouldn't be grace. But then he goes on to say, well, should we just sin then? By no means. And in our passage today, we're going to see him say, certainly not. A misunderstanding of grace leads one to that view, that misunderstanding where people can just have a license to sin. You could look at it like this. I was trying to think of an illustration for this. I don't know if this one's completely accurate, but maybe it'll do the trick to help you. I remember when I was 16 years old, uh, a bunch of my friends were, we were at a friend's house, and he had a little Dodge Colt. It was this little tiny little car. Anybody ever have a, a Dodge Colt from the, like the late 80s, early 90s? Greg? <laughs> you couldn't haul the kings in there now, because you can only fit like four people in there. And we had, I think, like 10 people in this Dodge Colt. We were just heading down the road about a mile, and it was a dirt road. We were going to another friend's house out in Brush Valley, PA. And it just so happened that on this road, at about a, the half-mile point in the bottom of this dip, we come across the state trooper just sitting there, I guess, having his lunch. And he, well, the lights come on, because he sees there's people in the trunk and people hanging out. I'm not endorsing this. This was wrong for me to do this. This was, this was sin. Um, but he gets out, and he gets his little citation book out, and I know right away I'll know. They're going to call our parents. They're going to give us fines. And I remember my friend Jamie, who this, Jamie uh, always had a, a way to get out of things, although now he actually is in state prison for bank robbery. But uh, Jamie... Uh, <laughs> gets out, and he says to the police officer, Sir, we know we're wrong. We're just heading a half mile down here. We can walk. Would you give us mercy? And the police officer stops and looks at us and looks at his citation book, and he says, Okay, I'll do that. I'll give you mercy. He didn't, he didn't write us any citations. He didn't arrest us. He didn't call our parents. He gave us mercy. He didn't give us what we actually deserved. Now, if that same police officer after that reached in his wallet and opened it up and said, you know what, I'm going to give you each a $100 bill, well, then he would have given us grace. He would have given us a free gift on top of that mercy that none of us deserved. So, mercy and grace are both factors in our Christian life, in our salvation, and without them, we wouldn't be saved but they're not the same thing. And we want to be sure to understand that. Grace is God's unmerited favor, His unmerited power, His ability in us to do what we cannot do to live this Christian life in spite of our sinfulness. And He has, he has grace for everybody. As a matter of fact, I don't have this in my notes uh, for the projection team, but in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let me just share this verse that the Lord laid on my heart this morning. It says, Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Let us then with confidence. First of all, the devil is going to make us think, I don't deserve grace. Uh, Look at what I did. Look at my life. I'm not going to be able to be helped. God's not going to help me. Why can we draw near to that throne of grace with confidence? Because we're not coming on our behalf. We're coming on behalf of Jesus Christ. That's who gives us this grace. And so it says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy. Oh good, that cancels out all my sin. And find grace to help in time of need. So if you, if you come to the place where you think, I can't do this, and I, I'm not going to ask God for help because I don't deserve it, that's, a, that's the wrong place to be. We, we approach a, a gracious God who has mercy on us because of Jesus Christ, and He has all the grace you need, and He'll give it to you. But you've got to come to Him with confidence. Not confidence in yourself. Confidence in Jesus Christ. So, grace gives us the power to be saved. Let's just look at a couple scriptures. And you know what? I, I, I wanted to get through verse 21 today. I'm going to take my time, though, because next week I'm preaching on chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, and that section really fits with verse 20 and 21 well. So what we don't cover today, we'll get to next week. So let me just take my time now, and um, I want to show a couple verses that show us what grace is. Ephesians 2.8, very familiar to us. Grace gives us the power to be saved. We talked about this. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. So our initial salvation, and in the context of that, it's talking about when we got saved. That was by God's grace. That was a free gift for us. And here's an interesting thing. How do we receive this grace? How do we receive the grace that we're saved by? Through faith, right? That's the same way we receive grace to live the Christian life. So, so if, if you leave here and you are faced with a trial or a temptation that you don't know how you're going to do it, you receive grace by faith. And we just looked at what we believe by belief. We looked at going to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help. Do I believe that, Hebrews 4.16? If you believe that promise, you will receive grace. We receive grace by faith. So we're saved by grace. Grace also frees us to overcome sin and trials. Look at these verses. Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law but under grace. Look, this is what we're going to see through the rest of this passage today. Trying to keep laws and rules to live your Christian life only results in sin having dominion over you. It only results in you becoming a slave to sin. The way to receive, the way to obey God is by relying on His grace. And that's why sin doesn't have dominion over us. If that's confusing, we'll try to clear that up in the rest of the message. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my, my what? 
power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, when we're weak and we can't do it and we're at that point where we realize it, that's when God's grace comes. You have to get there to receive His grace. But when you, when you act on His grace, you can overcome any trial, any temptation, anything. Let's look at one more. 1 Corinthians 15.10 Grace empowers us to live out the righteousness of Christ. Paul said, but by the grace, by the ability, by the power, by the strength of God that I don't deserve, and I get freely by believing His promises, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Grace doesn't mean that you just sit there in your easy chair and let God do everything. We work because of His grace. He says, I worked harder than any of them, but look what he says. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I I had a video, I wish I would have uploaded it to show you guys. It was a video, does anybody know who Dick Hoyt is? Anybody ever heard of Dick Hoyt? He's a triathlete. And he's a special kind of triathlete because he competes in these big triathlons and he carries his son Ricky, who is paralyzed, with him. He, he, when he swims, he hooks a rope to his shoulders and he pulls Ricky in a, little, in a little boat behind him. When he runs, he pushes a chair with Ricky in. When he goes from, from event to event, he picks Ricky up and he carries him. And Ricky can't do anything for himself because he's paralyzed. And Ricky's hooked up to one of those machines that he can't even talk, but somehow he talks through this machine. And and Ricky feels like he's running that race. Ricky thinks he's in the triathlons, and he lives for them. He loves them, but he doesn't do anything. It's his dad that does it all. That's, That's living by God's grace. We need to realize we don't do anything. It's our Father who does it all. God's grace is how we live this Christian life. Verse 17 in Galatians 2 leads us to the classic fear or protest of the legalist that that doesn't understand grace. Verse 17 will show us that when you take the, the, the legalist, and this is what Paul was anticipating in Galatia. He was anticipating this response, just as he does in Romans 6.1. He was, he was anticipating the thoughts of those who were trying to bring law back into the Galatian church. And their thoughts were basically, you can't take law away, because if you take law away, people are going to go crazy. They're, they are not going to know how to live. They're not going to know what to do. When you take the rules away. And so they had this idea that Christ alone, apart from law, wasn't sufficient. That's why they were bringing laws back. And so they say, let's read from, let's read from 15 on just to get that context there. We ourselves are not Jews by birth, or we ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. In Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by 
works of the law, no one will be justified. Then Paul anticipates this hypothetical protester when he says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Remember, Paul had just rebuked Peter for sitting with the the Gentile what? The Gentile who? Sinners. Remember, he he used that phrase earlier. The Gentile sinners. Look, in that day, you were either a Jew or you were a sinner. That's how the Jews saw it. So the Jews were very... The the Jews who were the legalistic Jews were very self-righteous, very pious, and looked down upon all other people. And in a lot of cases, rightly so, because they were doing a lot of bad things. But... Paul's saying here, these people, these legalists who don't understand salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, they're saying, they're going to say, hey, if, if it's just Christ and you take the law away, well then, Christ is a minister of sin. In other words, he's a servant of sin. He's going to serve sin up to all of you. He's going to make you sin because you don't have any, any, any law. And people need law. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying in verse 17. He's anticipating this reaction. Look, I understand. I understand the protest. I think most of us do. We live in a society with laws. And those laws are necessary in society. It's, it's like, um, well, I think we have a video where it shows the importance of laws. And I think this is in India. Watch the traffic here. Now, this makes me kind of sick to my stomach. I could not imagine driving in that traffic. There are no lines. There are no signs that show you where to go. No red lights. No green lights. It's it's crazy. I mean, that makes me nervous, actually. And the video is on for two minutes, and it gets even worse. But society needs laws. I'm all for laws in society. We, we don't want traffic like that. We need rules. Because why? Because God hasn't fully brought his kingdom to earth yet. One day when Jesus comes back and he's here ruling and reigning and he's separated the wheat from the tares, we won't need any laws because it's just going to be Jesus Christ. But see, that's how we're supposed to live the Christian life now. We're supposed to live just by Jesus Christ and him alone. And when we rely upon his grace, we don't need laws because he's given us his spirit inside of us to lead us to guide us. Romans 7, 6 tells us, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're released from that that thing that held us captive. Listen, laws are comfortable. 
because they tell you exactly what to do and what not to do. I was thinking of the movie Shawshank Redemption when Red told Andy Dufresne when he was talking about the prison walls. He said, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's being institutionalized. And in Galatia, Paul was fearful that many of these Christians who were, who were freed from the law through Jesus Christ were becoming reinstitutionalized. They were putting themselves back under the law as a means to both positional righteousness and experiential righteousness. And that's not the way for the Christian to be righteous. Paul says in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, the law, righteousness by law, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul said, if I, look, I, he said, I spent my life after Christ tearing down this law and establishing the righteousness of Christ. He says, if I rebuild that now, I'm proving myself to be a transgressor, a sinner. What does he mean by that? How can rebuilding law prove you to be a transgressor? Well, that's what the law does. That's what the law is for. We have many scriptures that we could look at. We won't, I won't show them to you just because of time. But we could look in Romans 5. We could look in Romans 7. We can look at Galatians, the next chapter, 3, where it tells us that the purpose of the law is to show us what? Our sin, right. The law proves that you're a transgressor. So Paul's saying, I don't want to rebuild that because all that does is show my sin. I don't need to show my sin now because Jesus Christ took it away and gave me the grace to live life to overcome that sin. And I don't want to get back into a place where I'm just proving my sin over and over. That's what we can do when we evaluate ourselves and others in comparison to the law instead of evaluating ourselves and others in comparison to Jesus Christ and what He says about us. We're no longer under that law. We don't want to be incarcerated again with that law that can really it, it can make us feel comfortable. I like checklists. Don't you like checklists? I, I like checklists in life. They help me to get things done. You got a good checklist, you plan your day out, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how you can be very productive. But when you have a checklist for the Christian life, be careful. Because you can very easily get back into law righteousness. We're going to see in 2.20, at the end of this message and next week, how to live by grace and not Christian checklists. So the purpose of the law is really to show us our sin. If you want to live as a Christian by a checklist, you're going to be, you're, you're probably either going to be very condemned because you don't measure up if your checklist is good enough, or you're going to be very proud looking down on other people who don't measure up to your checklist. God gave us a checklist. It's the law. And guess what? We've got to keep it all perfectly. We can't do it. 
except through Jesus Christ. So, you know who John Bunyan is? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I'm not sure if he wrote this little poem or not. There's some confusion about that, but I've probably given this poem about two dozen times since I've been a pastor, so there's room for one more because I think it expresses what we're trying to, what we're trying to get across here. It says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the difference between trying to keep the law in, in yourself, you can't do it, and living the Christian life by, by grace. I heard a story that a pastor gave in a message years and years ago. And I think it, I think it really helps us to get this point really well. So I wrote it, I rewrote it, I couldn't find it, I just rewrote what I remembered, and I, I pro- I, I'm sure I changed it some um, because I couldn't remember all of it. I just want to take a few minutes and read this to you. I want you to listen to this story, dependent on the Lord to show you the truth, if there is any truth in it, of what law and grace is and what the difference is between the two. I'll just read it so I don't forget anything. I want you to imagine a young woman named Sinner who meets a young man and falls in love with him. Now, she is absolutely enamored with him. And and that man is a really good man. He's everything she wants to be. He truly is the most perfect man that she has ever met. And she feels that he can help her to overcome her many shortcomings and failures. Everything he does is so good. Everything he says is right. And everybody agrees he's an exceptionally good man. So they plan to marry. This man's name is Mr. Law. Upon marrying Mr. Law, even during the honeymoon, she begins to see right away that he leads a very disciplined and structured life. She's excited. He's always right and good and moral, and she admires him and loves him for it. But after the honeymoon, they get back home. And on the first day, he's about to go out to work. And he says to her, Sinner, before I go out, I want to tell you that you need to behave to my standard. Here's a checklist. Do it all exactly as I have said. And we'll have no problems. And you'll overcome all of your shortcomings and failures. So she looks at the checklist. I mean, she wants to to do right. And uh, she sees that they're all good things and they're all right things and they're things of very high standard. So she tries. Mr. Law comes home and the first thing he says is, let me see your checklist. Have you done everything exactly as I've instructed you? And very quickly as he reviews it, he points out everywhere that she's failed to comply. The next day, it's just as bad. The next day, the same process is repeated. He's quick to point out all of her mistakes. He never lifts a finger to help her, though. Day after day, this goes on, and of course she becomes more and more depressed, more and more worn out, more and more frustrated, and he never asks her how she is. He never shows her love. He just makes demand after demand after demand and points out failure after failure after failure. Exhausted, sinner 
develops a huge inferiority complex and she becomes full of guilt and a sense of being an absolute failure. She's lived up to her name and he lets her know every day. Then one day, Mr. Law dies. Now, Sinner knows the protocol, so she mourns politely. But deep down, she's very relieved. And sometime later, she meets another man. And this man is also very morally good. As a matter of fact, his personal life is every bit as good as Mr. Law's. Actually, it's better. Over time, they fall in love and plan to marry. This man's name is Mr. Grace. So Sinner marries Mr. Grace, and right away, she has an overwhelming sense of, of his love and his righteousness and his grace. Mr. Grace's standards are every bit as high as Mr. Law, but Sinner realizes that he goes about things in a far different way. The first thing she notices is that Mr. Grace tells her that from now on, she's no longer called Sinner. That's not her name anymore. Her new name is Saint because he doesn't choose to focus on her sin. He chooses to focus on those things that she does well. Then he tells her that she's not on her own in this life. You and me, he says, we're in this together. I'm here to help you do everything. As a matter of fact, if you just stay beside me, I'll walk you through all of it. You never have to do it alone. Mr. Grace loves her. And the more time he spends, she spends with him, the more he motivates her and makes her want to do what is right and good. He imparts power and wisdom to her. And there are times when she, when she still fails. A lot of times. But he always picks her up and says, I'm here for you. We'll try again. He does this no matter how many times she fails. Even when she feels like she's let him down and he's not going to do it, he does it anyways. And even in those times that she's walked away from him, he always welcomes her back and pursues her. Sinner is all of us. Jesus is Mr. Grace. It's possible as Christians under the covenant of grace to find ourselves flirting with the late Mr. Law. That's what was happening in Galatia. That's what Paul was correcting. And just as if us who are married were flirting with someone other than our spouse, that is adultery. We can commit spiritual adultery. Now, so often we think, and this is true, that when we as Christians sin, go to idols, whatever they may be, we're committing spiritual adultery. We're leaving Jesus Christ. And that's true because we're not putting ourselves under His grace to live by. But you can have a, a life that looks wonderful, that looks great. You can actually be doing all the right things, but really they're dead works, and you can be committing spiritual adultery. You don't have to be committing obvious sins to be a spiritual, spiritual adulterer. 
You just have to be religious without the relationship. Romans 7 explains this clearly. Let's look at the verses 1 through 4. Or do you not know, brothers, for am I speaking to those who... I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while she lives. While he lives, sorry. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So Paul here is doing what we just did. He's, he's using the analogy of a marriage to show that, that, that we were married to the law before we were under grace. He says, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... Now, pay attention to this, because this, here's, a, here's a problem with the former illustration. The law never died. Okay? In, our, in our little story, Mr. Law died. The law never died. The law lasts. It, it goes on forever. The law didn't die. So if the law doesn't die, how are we free to be remarried to someone else? We have to die. And this is where our illustration kind of fell apart, though it served its purpose. Paul gives it rightly here. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. We died to the law through the body of Christ so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We'll never bear fruit under the law. You might look like you're doing good things. You might even do good things. But to God, those are dead works. Look, there's going to be a lot. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of pastors who preached really good messages, but they did it in their own power. They didn't do it by the power of the Spirit. There was a man, I think his name was C.T. Studd. He, he had a quote, and I'm going to try to recall it. It said something like, I just saw it on a tombstone not too long ago when I was walking in this cemetery. It says something like, Only one life will soon be passed, but it's only what's done for Christ that will last. In other words, those things that are done by grace are all that we're going to be rewarded for when we go to heaven to be with the Lord. All those other things are dead works. So, the Lord's telling us here how to leave law and live by grace. In other words, grace isn't just for our initial salvation. Again, the whole thing is by grace. And we need to get this to experience the life that Jesus came to give. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And have it abundantly. We'll look more at this next week, but in, in the Greek there are several words for life. The word in this passage, the life that we now live, the word in that passage, it's zoe. That word means the highest quality of life. Look, you can have bios, you can have psuche, those are different kinds of life. Bios, I'm sure you under, understand what that is. It's more your physical life. Zoe, this kind of life he's talking about, this is the highest quality of life. This is the kind of life Jesus came to give us. This is the kind of life that we're talking about in Galatians 2.20 under grace. This is the life lived under grace, not law. This is the victorious Christian life. And so, listen, we're all human. We're not in heaven yet. We're not fully redeemed yet. If you're a Christian, you know 
the frustration of not being able to live this life. And we're all in this together trying to figure it out and learning as we go. This is how you live this Christian life. Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's knowing this truth. Look, this is true if you're a Christian. But you don't experience it unless you know it and believe it. We're going to see this very clearly next week. I have been crucified with Christ. We can say this, okay? So if you're a Christian, say this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's true. The reason we don't experience it on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-to-moment basis, is because we don't know it, we don't think about it, we don't believe it, we don't depend on his grace to live that life. If we do, we're going to live it. Actually, he's going to live it through us, just like it says. There is... There's one main reason why the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives inside of us, and that's so that we can experience His divine life. That's the fundamental characteristic of your life as a Christian, that Jesus has given His life to you and desires to express it at every moment. Look, we often think about the substitutionary death of Christ, right? That means that He died in our place, so we don't have to die. We don't have to die that death. He did it, right? And we believe that, right? Well, it's not just the substitutionary death of Christ. It's also the substitutionary life of Christ. And that's what so many times we forget about or we miss out on. And that's why we fail when we fail. It's not so much a changed life. Christianity is not so much a changed life. Now, when you hear me say that, you're going to be thinking, what? What? It's not a changed life. No. It's an exchanged life. Just like you got saved by exchanging your sinfulness for His righteousness and believing in that, you live the Christian life by exchanging your sinfulness and inability for His righteousness. And you live by that. In other words, you let Him live that through you because He's the only one who can live the Christian life. How many people can live the Christian life perfectly? Nobody, just Jesus. He's the only one. And that's why God designed it so that he can live this life through us because we can't. We can't. And if you think you can and you look good on the outside, it doesn't look good to God. It's the exchanged life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Say that to yourself every morning when you get up. In every hour of every day. Because you need to, we need to reprogram our brains to believe that. Because our brains are still a part of our flesh. And our flesh is the thing that wants to do it by itself. So we need to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And the way we do that is by reprogramming our mind and transforming it to the Word of God. That's walking by the Spirit. 
And that's how we're supposed to walk. And that's how you're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's an exchanged life. We all need Jesus to live in our place because we can't do it. Look at what happens. I'm, I'm almost done. But look at what happens. Look at what happens when you try to do this yourself, okay? This is what Paul is explaining in Romans 7. And look at verses 15 uh, through 19. Here's what happens when, you, when we walk by the flesh as a Christian and not by the Spirit and try to do it ourselves through our own effort, apart from the Lord, apart from His grace. For I do not understand my own actions, Paul says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How many can identify with that? Raise your hand if you can identify with that. Thank you. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Right? It shows me what to do. But it's no longer who I who do it. Now, this is so important, and it's, this takes a whole sermon in itself, so I won't go into a tangent. But Paul says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Look, you, we have to so detach from the old self that we can say with Paul, if I sin, it's not even me. Now, there's confusion about that because there's other scriptures that tell us we need to take responsibility for our sin. But in this sense that we're talking about today, when you sin, it's not even the real you. The new you doesn't sin because the new you is the one that always walks in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's actually Him living life through you. So Paul says, it's not, it's not even me. It's a sin that dwells in me. If you want to do something fun, look at this passage and look at the pronoun I and me and try to define who Paul's talking about because it's, it's, it's just like um, the Smeagol Gollum thing. There's like two people here, but they're all one person, and he, he's, he's, it's fun. It's really hard. Try to do that sometime. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So up here he's saying it's not me who sins, and down here he's saying nothing good dwells in me. See, it's two different eyes. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You've got to really pay attention and study that. But what he's saying here is, look, if I try to live this Christian life apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, apart from just dying to myself and letting him live through me, I fail. And I can testify that that is true. And I have to remind myself of that every single day. I think we all do. We need Jesus. That's all this is. We need Jesus. And it's only Him who can do it. It's an exchanged life. It's a relationship. It's not rules. It's not rules. It's a relationship with Him and Jesus describes that relationship in John 15 when he says, he describes what it looks like. He says, abide in me. That just means continue, remain in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That is true for us as Christians. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. 
nothing. So let's, let's just look at the first part of Galatians 2.20 to end. We'll pick it back up next week because there's a lot more to say. The first thing Paul says in 2.20 is this. I have been crucified with Christ. So, to let Christ live in us, what is our only responsibility? What is our only job? And that is simply to die. Not physically, but to die to ourselves. To die, to crucify our will. To crucify our desires. Basically to get out of His way. To not sit on the throne of our heart, but to get off the throne of our heart and let Him sit on the throne of our heart. That's what it means that Jesus is our Lord. And every time we sin, we're denying that. That He's our Lord. Every time you sin, you're denying that He's our Lord, your Lord because you're getting on the throne of your heart. This is the call to us as Christians to give our lives as a living sacrifice to Him. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. Jesus said in, in Luke 9, 23 and 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We've got to lose our lives. This is living under grace. You don't do that to get saved. Because if you did, none of us would do it. None of us, none of us have crucified our lives perfectly. And the law requires perfection. And if you want to be saved by law, you've got to do it perfectly. So this isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about following Jesus Christ. Laying down your life for Him. This applies to all of us as Christians. And to the degree we can die to ourselves, to that degree, He will live through us. Uh, I was telling Jane the other day as I was preparing for this, I don't feel like I've like reached any high level of this yet. There are so many places in my life where I sit on the throne and I realize that all the time. Like I, I don't feel like I have died to myself. And she said... It was encouraging because I wasn't thinking of this at all. She said, well, I want you to remember when, when you were in your 20s and you were teaching the adult Sunday school class at the little church we used to go to, there were these old ladies that came up to me, a couple different old ladies, and said, you're going to be a preacher someday. And I got angry with them. And I said, no, and I didn't say it to them, but I said to Jane, no, I'm not going to be a preacher someday. Because my mind was made up, I wanted to be you know, a forester or a wildlife biologist or something like that where I could go and be in the woods and work with trees and, and, and not people. <laughs> but here's the thing. Jane said, 
you knew God was calling you to this over time, and you laid down your desires, and I did. And I want to tell you, as Psalm 37, 4 and 5 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. And I didn't realize it, but she said, that's, a, that's an example of dying to yourself and letting Christ live through you. And now, I enjoy being a pastor. He has given me new desires. I want to be a pastor. I want to help people. I want to meet with people. I want to counsel people. I want to preach God's Word to people. I still like being in the woods, but I want to do this because God... All I can say is it's not in my natural comfort zone. This, what I'm doing right now, this, this is about as far as my natural comfort zone as you can get. I said this before. I froze up in 10th grade giving an oral book report. I, I am not a person to speak in front of people. And every time I do it, every time I do it, I just say, God, you're going to have to do this because I can't. We have to die to ourselves. Now, you might not be called to be a pastor. You might not be called to be a missionary. But that's just one thing in the broad spectrum. God calls us to do a lot of things every day. We've got to surrender to Him. And when you do, you will experience joy. You might not at first. It might be hard. But over time, you'll experience Him living in and through you. And so... I encourage you to have an attitude in your mind as you leave here today of looking for opportunities to surrender to the Spirit of God and where He's leading you and just letting Him live through you. I, uh, I want to give this last quote and then we'll pray. I once heard a, a pastor, an old-time Chinese pastor, uh, say it better than I can say it. He, this is how he basically sums up what we're talking about. He said this, Grace means that God does something for me. Law means that I do something for God. God has certain holy and righteous demands that He places upon me. That is law. Religion means that God requires me to fulfill these demands. But grace means that He no longer requires that from me but provides it himself. This guy gets the Christian life. It's not a changed life. It's an exchanged life, which is better. And Christ is the one who does it in us from start to finish. Let's pray, and we'll have the band come up and close our service. Father, pray that you would help us to all understand this in a deeper way. I don't fully understand this, I confess. I need your spirit to reveal it to me in a deeper way and I need we all do we all need your spirit to reveal this truth of dying to ourselves and living to you as the means to this life in a deeper way so do that for us would you do that for us through this message would you do that for us through our experience as we go on and live our lives after leaving here today and even as we sing this last song help us to see clues in the words that will help us to understand this truth. We thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us Jesus, because without him, we truly can do nothing at all. And it's in his name we pray this all and ask this all. Amen.